0: To chapter three. And again, praise the Lord for an amazing message on the last minute last week and preaching such an amazing message on the gospel. We need to understand who God is. We under- need to understand who we are made in God's image, but corrupting that image. We need to understand what Jesus has done in saving us. We need to understand the response that we must have To the call of the gospel to repent and to believe. Praise the Lord for such a clear gospel message. And I was so bummed for so many reasons not being able to be here last week. But really one of the biggest things that I felt that I missed out on was communion. To be able to hear such an amazing message about the gospel and then to partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper and be reminded of the gospel that Jesus' body broken for me and Jesus' blood poured out for me is my only hope of salvation. And the beauty of the passage that we are coming to this morning is that it preaches just that truth. We are born natural legalists. We are born with human tendencies to legalism. We love legalism. We love approval. We love being able to say, I did it. Uh, This is amazing for parenting, and this is also a nightmare for parenting. It's amazing because now Chelsea has a reason to go potty on the toilet. If we tell her, you get a lollipop if you go potty on the toilet. Man, she's been doing so well because there's a reward in it. And boy, she's so happy to show me, Daddy, look at my lollipop. I got the lollipop for going potty on the toilet. The only reason that works is because we are born natural legalists with a, an idea in our minds and in our hearts of I can earn, I can work, I can deserve things. And look at what I gained for myself. This is why every religion in the entire world plays to the natural born legalist in each and every one of us. It plays to that in our hearts. You have a broken relationship with God, but the good news is you can do something to earn a right standing before God. That's what every religion says. You can do something. You have to do something. And so often they wrap it up in a, this is a work you must do, and if you don't do it, it's bad for you. But the reality is we love being told, I can do that, and then God will love me because of what I've done. Oh, we love that. There's only one religion, and I hate calling Christianity a religion because religion in my mind is so works-based to begin with. There's only one system of beliefs coming from the Bible and the Bible alone that tells you and me we can do nothing to earn a right standing before the Lord. Now, for some of us, we say good because I don't have anything good to offer God anyway. But for others, we might say, yeah, but I'm a good person. I've done things that are decently good, and I haven't really done things that are that terrible. I mean, isn't that really all we need? Doesn't God grade on a curve anyway? Isn't it okay if I'm just never put in jail? Or isn't it okay if I go to jail, but I never go back again? Or isn't it okay if I never murder somebody? Or if I do, I don't kill them again. doesn't work. We come up with so many different ways to try and appease our own conscience. And what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 is the gospel. Remember, the theme of these verses, verses 1 through 11, is very clearly justification. That God declares you righteous. To the imputed righteousness of his son. Imputed righteousness just means that Jesus takes his righteousness and sticks it into your account. Consider a bank account, a spiritual bank account before the Lord, and you have only sin in your spiritual bank account. And what God does when he looks at you as you have faith in Jesus Christ... He looks at his son and his son's perfect life and he takes that perfection and he imputes it into your account and takes all of your sin in your bank account, your spiritual bank account, and imputes it and puts it upon the Lord so that when he is killed on the cross, the wrath of God is poured out upon your sins on Jesus on the cross. That's imputed righteousness. And you need to know that term, however technical it may be. You need to know that term because we're going to talk about Uh, a certain religion that believes in imparted righteousness. And oh, how close they are, but oh, how very different they are. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, as opposed to yourself. Don't rejoice in your own good works. We looked at these verses two weeks ago. Don't rejoice in your own good works. Rejoice in the Lord and in his righteousness. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard for you so that you don't fall off of the cliff. This is the guardrail that will keep you in true orthodoxy, that will keep you from falling off into heresy. What is the heresy? Verse 2 specifically, it's the Judaizers. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Three different um, detailed descriptions of the same people group. The Judaizers that claimed, yes, you need Faith in Jesus Christ and grace alone, but you need to be circumcised. and if you are not circumcised, you cannot be saved. And he says, no, 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 we are the true circumcision. They are the false circumcision. They are putting their trust and their confidence in themselves, but we, verse three, are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus and not in ourselves, and we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. Now, there are two types of people that can read that. One type of people's groups say, I will put no confidence in my flesh because I have no confidence in my flesh. I can do nothing good, and I have nothing good to show for myself. So, hooray, I will put no confidence in my flesh because I have nothing good to show. And some people might read this and think, Paul... You're just saying, let's believe in Jesus and not boast in our own good works because you have no good works to show. And this is where Paul says, no, there's another group of people that think I'm good enough to earn Jesus' favor. And those people look at everything that they have, whether inherited or whether earned, and they say, I have reason to boast and have confidence in my flesh. Paul says, I was one of those people. I had so much going for me, and yet all of it, he, he basically... We're coming up. Tuesday is Tax Day, so here you go. This is assets and liabilities. Let's write down a bracket and start balancing out our ledger. That brings bad memories for our brother Paul here. We're going to balance out our ledger. Paul says I had everything here going for me. He's going to list seven descriptions of things that he could put his trust in, and he said they used to be assets for me, but now they're liabilities. And he's going to move everything over on the ledger from an asset to a liability. He's going to move it all over. What are these seven things? We're going to look at verses four through seven. And we're going to see seven areas that Paul could have placed his trust in. And at one time he did. And these seven areas are really split into two main categories. And I love these two categories. They're inherited categories and earned things. Inherited things and earned things. So these seven areas, these seven places that Paul would place his confidence can be split into those that really were just inherited by him and those that he actually worked to earn. And you'll see that break in verse five when he says, as to the law of Pharisee, that's when he begins on the earned side of the seven things. But let's start in verse four. Although. I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, and if anyone has a mind to put confidence in their flesh, I far more. He says, I have a reason to boast in who I am before God, and I have a reason to think that if there's anyone in the universe that could have gotten to God based on what they have done or who they are inherently, it's me. That's the whole point of what he's saying. So what do you have going for you, Paul? Number one, we'll call it religious Rituals And these all come from Jim Boyce. I couldn't improve upon his outline. Religious rituals. Religious rituals. He says, I was, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcised on the eighth day. This is exactly what the Judaizers wanted the Philippian church to do. They wanted the Philippian Christians to believe in Jesus Christ and then circumcise themselves. And that work will bring them salvation and right standing before God. Paul said, I was circumcised. Not only was I circumcised, I was circumcised on the eighth day. According to Genesis 17, Genesis 21, and Leviticus 12, this is exactly what the Mosaic law had commanded. It commanded circumcision on the eighth day. So Paul is saying, I'm not like Ishmael, who was circumcised when he was 13 years old. I'm not like a Gentile convert who's circumcised when I'm converted, no matter where I am in my adult life. I was circumcised exactly when God told me to be. And here is, here's the key of religious rituals. Circumcision was something that God had commanded. It was something God had commanded. It wasn't a man-made idea. God said, circumcise your male children on the eighth day. That's what God had commanded to the Israelites. But if we take something that God has commanded us to do, and we turn it into a way to have right standing before him, like the Judaizers did with circumcision, we believe a false gospel. I think the best example of this in modern day Christianity and evangelicalism is actually a church that's right next to us. Church of Christ. Church of Christ believes That you must be baptized to be saved. What a perfect modern parallel to circumcision in the New Testament time. You must be circumcised to be saved. Now we just say you must be baptized to be saved. If you add any human work or effort to the grace of God, you nullify the grace of God. The Catholic Church does this as well with baptizing infants or going to Mass or saying Hail Mary's. And this is the the group of people that don't believe in imputed righteousness. They believe in something called imparted righteousness. That what Jesus did on the cross is he gave you the ability to, to live righteously. And if you live in that righteousness that Jesus gave to you, you will be saved. They would clearly say you're saved by your works. The way that they try to nuance it is they say the works are given to you by Jesus. But they don't believe you are saved by imputed righteousness, justified at the cross, justified at the moment that you are uh, believing in Jesus and have faith in Jesus Christ. They believe that you believe and you are given the gift of imparted righteousness and then you must live out that imparted righteousness to be saved. What's a Protestant example of this? Uh, I think walking an aisle, praying a prayer, signing a card, being baptized. None of those are bad things. All of those are very good things. But if those good things that we do are the things that we look to to say, okay, I was baptized, so I know I must be saved, then we're looking to a religious ritual, hoping that that religious ritual will gain us acceptance before God. Paul says that's not going to work. We cannot place our confidence in any religious ritual, even if it's a ritual that God himself gave us to do. Doesn't mean that by doing it we have access before the Father. And we'll talk about that more as we get to the last uh, point in verse 6 of being found blameless. So, religious ritual. Salvation from God's wrath is not nor ever will be by a religious ritual, by a doing that you or I could ever do. Secondly, ethnic background. Ethnic background. He says, "I was circumcised on the eighth day, that's a religious ritual. And then secondly, of the nation of Israel, his ethnic background. He was a physical descendant of Abraham. And this is really uh, so this is Palm Sunday today. You remember the Jews struggled with the idea of Jesus as their Messiah. They welcomed him in, They accepted him on Palm Sunday because they thought he was going to do certain things that he ended up not doing. And there were three main ways that Jesus caused the Jews to stumble. Number one, the Jews thought that Jesus was going to be a political um, Messiah, a a king who would come in and give political freedom from the oppressive Romans. And Jesus didn't do that. Remember, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Number two, uh, the Jews believed that the Messiah would have hatred for Gentiles. And Jesus says the exact opposite. Jesus says my remember when he cleanses the temple my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations not just the Jews for every nation uh, you remember he said in his hometown the thing that got him um, put onto a cliff and when all of his hometown family members wanted to throw him off the cliff it was because he said do you remember that the gentiles are the one in the old testament you remember um, Naaman he was a Syrian and he was healed by God and nobody else, no a Jew was healed by God in that time period. It was the Gentiles that God went after and so too the Messiah has come for Gentiles as well as Jews. The Jews didn't like that. They thought that the Messiah should hate Gentiles and finally, thirdly, they thought that if you were a Jew, you just got to waltz into the kingdom. Said another way, they thought the Messiah would demand nothing from a Jew. If you were a Jew... If you are ethnic Israel, you get to go into the kingdom. So they praised him on Sunday, but they struggled with his teaching because he wasn't matching up to who they thought he was supposed to be. Turn to John chapter 8. Paul says, I was, I am of the nation of Israel. You know that he is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees themselves struggle with this. You remember John the Baptist earlier in John, John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, stop calling yourselves descendants of Abraham. Stop placing your hope in the fact that you are descendants of Abraham. That's not going to gain you a right stand before God. Here's another area where we see that John chapter eight, verse 31. John chapter eight, verse 31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. So these are Jews that believe, but this isn't belief to salvation. He says, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, Jesus says, I'm going to make you free because your oppressor is sin. And they say, We are, we've always been free because we are Abraham's descendants. They place their hope in the fact that they are ethnic Israel. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, your ethnic background will not save you. Uh, Just because you were not born in a Muslim country does not make you a Christian. We are definitely not a Christian nation. But people say, oh, we're a Christian nation because we're just not a Muslim nation. There are people that I've shared the gospel with that say these words. And it just it's one of those where you just have to kind of rewind. I mean, what did you just say? I say, share your testimony. They say, oh, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Great. Can I hear your testimony? Well, I was born a Christian. And blah, 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 wait, wait, wait pause. You were born a Christian? What does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean? <laughs> the Bible says that I was born an enemy of God. I was born a child of wrath. I was born a sinner. People think, well, because your parents are Christian, you're a Christian too. I know Brian faces that battle in youth ministry all the time. Kids that don't make their faith their own. That's this issue. Oh, my parents are Christians, so I'm a Christian. No. Just because you are from an ethnic people group that maybe is a majority of Christians, which we aren't, by the way, anyway, doesn't make you a Christian. And so Paul says, I cannot trust in religious rituals. I cannot trust in my ethnic background. Thirdly, I cannot trust in my spiritual heritage. I cannot trust in my spiritual heritage. This is actually the only place I departed from Jim Boyce's outline because his says spiritual ancestry. And I thought, well, we're in heritage Christian school, so it has to be spiritual heritage. He says, I am circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel, and I am of the tribe of Benjamin. His spiritual heritage. What, what in the world is the tribe of Benjamin? Why does he remember that? Why does he bring that up? Why is there anything good that you can boast about with being of the tribe of Benjamin? Well, let me give you three reasons. Number one, the tribe of Benjamin, you remember the 12 tribes of Israel scattered in uh, the region of Israel, scattered throughout the tribe of Benjamin. Their region included Jerusalem. So it included the temple. So that was a high and lofty region. Therefore, a high and lofty tribe. Secondly, the first king of Israel, Saul, was a Benjamite. And I think I've already told you before that I think it's, we can't find it for sure, it's not explicit in the text, but I think that Paul, who was named Saul, was probably named after the the first king of Israel. Uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, was a Benjamite. Saul, the apostle, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you want to be uh, following in the footsteps of a very good person, follow in the footsteps of Saul, the first king of Israel, so go ahead and follow him. And I think that Saul was probably named after him. But those aren't the real reasons, I, I don't think, that Paul says, I have reason to boast in the fact that I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Here's the real reason. You remember when So Saul was king, and then he was rejected, David became king, and then his son, who? Solomon became king. And then Solomon's son became king. And who was Solomon's son? Rehoboam. Rehoboam became king. You remember Rehoboam uh, was king of the United Kingdom, all 12 tribes together. And then he made a really stupid decision because he was a young punk. And he decided to go ahead and start causing slavery and and not listening to the older people and uh, made a bunch of dumb decisions. And so 10 of the 12 tribes defected and they became the northern tribes. They became Israel and Judah and one other tribe stayed in the south. The other tribe was Benjamin. Judah stayed in the south and Benjamin stayed in the south. And so Benjamin had a huge heritage of saying, we didn't defect. We stayed. We didn't go up into the north and worship in Dan and worship golden calves. We worshiped in the temple. The southern tribes looked down on the northern tribes and specifically Benjamin was able to say, look, we are the ones that stayed true to what God had commanded. Paul says, I I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. This is impressive because he even knows what tribe he is from. With the deportation into uh, Babylon and into Assyria and everything that had gone on, it would have been difficult to remember your lineage and your spiritual heritage. But Paul says, I remember my spiritual heritage. I know who my parents' 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 parents were. And I know that they did not bow the knee to a golden calf in Dan. They stayed true to the one true God. Were your parents believers? Again, are you placing your hope in the fact that your parents' faith will save you? It's like transferable faith. Hey, they believed. Can I get in with them? God will judge you. God will judge them. We cannot ride in on the coattails of our parents' faith and our spiritual heritage, though it could be a huge asset for us. To know that we have been given the gift of having faithful, godly parents above us that encourage us in the faith. That's an amazing gift. Don't turn it into a liability by saying, oh, I'll just trust in it for salvation. So he doesn't believe in his own religious rituals or his own ethnic background or his own spiritual heritage. Number four, traditional lifestyle. We'll call it that, traditional lifestyle. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is just, uh, you know, Song of Solomon. The real title is Song of Songs, like King of Kings, Lord of Lords. just means the best song of all the songs. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the best Hebrew of all of the Hebrews. I didn't allow myself to be Hellenized. You remember when Greece came and they took over and they said, you must believe our gods. You must follow our gods. You must speak our language. You must become Greek through and through. Remember, this was the start of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul says, I'm not going to be Hellenized. His parents were not Hellenized. They stayed true to the Jewish faith. They became Pharisees. Saul becomes the Pharisee. It's interesting. We know that Saul was born in, Paul, Saul was born in Tarsus, which is modern day Turkey. But apparently he was brought up in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 22, verse 3, in his testimony, he says he was brought up in Jerusalem studying under Gamaliel, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, if you will. He says... My parents knew they didn't want me growing up in a country or a city that was foreign. They wanted me in Jerusalem, and I grew up in Jerusalem. Even on the Damascus Road, Jesus spoke to Paul in Hebrew. He didn't learn Greek, and that was it. He learned Hebrew. He learned the language of his people. He also learned Aramaic. He spoke to many Jews in Aramaic. He did learn Greek. He wrote in Greek. But he says, I was... I was Hebrew through and through, and you could not make me budge on that. Maybe we have spiritual pride over our denominations or our affiliations. Maybe it's uh, we go to church every Sunday. That's my tradition, traditional lifestyle. You can cross that one off my list. I was doing really well in my attendance up until last week. You cannot hold righteousness and confidence in traditions, Christian traditions that you have. Maybe there are things that you've been brought up to think are, if you do this, you'll be saved. Paul says, whether it's a religious ritual or an ethnic background or a spiritual heritage or a traditional lifestyle, that's just, I'm not a bad guy, I'm actually a really, really good guy. None of those will present you before God on the last day blameless. Those are all inherited. Those are all things that Paul grew up inheriting. He was circumcised on the eighth day because his parents had him circumcised. He was of the nation of Israel because he was born in the nation of Israel. He was of the tribe of ben- Benjamin because he was born in the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews because his parents enabled him to do that, to live that out in Jerusalem, study under Gamaliel. But it's not just inherited things. It's also earned things. And that's what we find at the end of verse 5 into verse 6. Paul then says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the law, a Pharisee, we'll call this number five, religious association, religious association, Acts chapter 22, verse three in his testimony, Paul says he studied under Gamaliel, who was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the head honcho. He was the guy to study under. And Paul says, I got to study under him. To be a Pharisee, in our mind, and rightfully so, we think hypocrisy, right? We instantly think if somebody calls you a Pharisee, they're calling you a hypocrite. But if we go back to a Jewish mindset, to a New Testament reader's mindset, to be a Pharisee is to be in an elite class all by yourself. Josephus tells us that there were about 6,000 Pharisees in the entire land of Israel. About 6,000 Pharisees in the time of Jesus in the entire land of Israel with millions of people in that area. Only 6,000 were able to be Pharisees. You had to memorize the entire Torah. You had to live out all of these different rituals. To be a Pharisee meant that you had reached the highest of religious associations. And just to remind us that we can fall into this same category If you think, man, I'd never be a Pharisee. I hate Pharisees. Pharisees are hypocrites. I'm not like that. Pharisees saw the scriptures as authoritative and infallible. I'm hoping you and I do the same. Pharisees interpreted the Bible literally as opposed to figuratively, and I'm hoping you and I do the same. Pharisees saw one of their main jobs in life as defending the word of God from attack, error and I hope that you and I would believe the exact same thing but they did all of this thinking that they would find favor with God based on their affiliation in their elite Pharisee group by what they do nothing that you and I can do can earn us a right standing before God Paul says sixthly he had spiritual zeal not only was he a Pharisee, but he was a persecutor of the church, verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He had a single-minded devotion to what he desired to do. He was spiritually zealous. But if you think, and this is, this is so key, if you think that you can go stand before God on the last day and because of your enthusiasm over godly things or because of your sincerity in whatever your religious rituals are, that those will bring you right standing before God, you're gravely mistaken. I remember listening to uh, a megachurch pastor. You guys know Joel Osteen. I remember listening to him on Larry King Live. And Larry King, he understands the gospel. He understands if you believe the Bible, then anybody other than those who believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation are going to hell. Larry knows that. He doesn't bow the knee to it, but he knows that. He's had John MacArthur on his program enough times. He knows that. And so he asks Joel Osteen, "Um, what about all of these other religions? What about Hindus? What about Buddhists? What about Muslims? And he's trying to Larry King's trying to say you have to make a choice, you have to make a delineation, and you know that's one of Joel Osteen's least favorite things to do. And so Joel says this, and it's so key to hear what he says. Well, my my dad used to go over there, and I used to go with my dad on missions trips to serve them, and they are, and he uses these words, sincere in their faith. So who am I to judge? They're sincere in their faith, so I don't know, maybe they go to heaven. I can't judge. They're sincere in their faith of believing in a God who doesn't exist. They're sincere in their faith of believing a gospel that doesn't save no matter their sincerity, it doesn't won't get them before God where God says, oh, you were sincere, even though you believed everything that was wrong. You were sincere in it. So we'll let you in. No. Enthusiasm, sincerity, spiritual zeal, even as Paul had when he was Saul persecuting the church, chasing down the church with a single minded devotion to live for what he thought was righteous. The world is full of people who are sincere in their religion, but their sincerity will not save them. Our spiritual zeal is good, but we cannot look to God and say, look at my zealousness. Look at how amazingly zealous I am for you. That's what gets me into heaven. It won't do it. Finally, number seven, your own righteousness. I love how this is the last one. Oh, no, this is the last one. This is the one that we normally look at. This is the one we normally talk to people when we're sharing the gospel. Do you think you're a good person, right? Do you think you're a good person? Well, let's measure you by the Ten Commandments. Here we go, gospel. Paul has six other specific detailed things that he says you could place your trust in. And I think we just tend to miss those. We tend not to think we might trust in our ethnic Background, or our spiritual heritage or our zealous sincerity. Finally, Paul says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, sound blameless. That word blameless, it doesn't mean sinless. He would use a word that means sinless. In the Greek, this word means observable conduct with which no one can find fault. So he's saying on the outside, I'm squeaky clean. According to the law, I'm squeaky clean. I don't think Paul ever would have said that he was sinless. But what he's saying is what the law tells me not to do, I don't do it. What the law tells me to do, I do it. But you and I both know that he had a misunderstanding of the law. So many people try to do the good works that the law tells them they have to do in order to achieve a right standing before God. But the law's purpose is not to give you a roadmap that will enable you to get to heaven The point of the law is to show you you could never get to heaven on your own. That's the whole point of the law. What a backwards misunderstanding of the law. When we say, oh, I'll just keep all these good works and then I'll get to heaven. No, the whole point of the law is to show us we cannot be good enough. Turn to Romans chapter 9. This is what Paul says in Romans. Romans chapter 9. Verse 30, starting in verse 30, Romans 9, verse 30, he says this. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. So he's saying, wait, how can you say to me that the Gentiles who do not keep the law can become righteous? And you're telling me that the Israelites, the Jews who keep the law, are not righteous? how is this it says verse 32 because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works they stumbled over the stumbling stone just as it is written behold i lay in zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and he who believes in him will not be disappointed or put to shame they stumbled over the fact that jesus came and said you could never do good enough you could never work hard enough your good works are filthy rags before me. You must deny yourself and you must follow me and trust in me and my goodness. They didn't pursue it by faith. They thought the law could give them a right standing. Brother, in verse 1, my heart's desire, chapter 10, verse 1, and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They sought to establish a righteousness of their own derived from the law. That's why I love Philippians 3.9. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith. A righteousness that comes from God alone. An alien righteousness. A righteousness... Of another. It's so ironic that that which God designed to produce guilt, namely the law, that which God designed to produce an awareness of our sin and our need for a Savior, we so often take it and turn it into a way of working hard enough to earn God's favor. The truth is that James 2.10 says that if we break even just one area of the law, we've broken the whole law. You break just one area of a window pane, got to fix the whole thing. Can't go, oh, we'll just cover this up and we'll be fine. One little spidery crack on your windshield, take the whole thing out and put a new one in. Jim Boyce gives a great example. He says, it's as if a boat is tethered, chained to a dock. And we so often think that in order to, to loosen that boat and let it leave, you have to break the whole, every single link. And he says, No. The reality is that the law tells us just one break in one link in a chain, that boat's gone. Just one chain, just one link being broken, and that boat's gone. He says, We often think of those that break many different links in the chain as criminals. Oh, but look at me. I've only broken one. I'm okay. I'll try and patch it up together. And he says, you're lost even if one half of one is broken. We're lost. Romans chapter 3. We've been here already uh, two weeks ago, but we need to go back. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. What's the point of the law? So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. The point of the law is to shut our mouths so that we can no longer say, I can be good enough. Every mouth may be closed. The world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, verse 20, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin he doesn't say through the law comes the ability to earn righteousness. We are so uh, backwards sometimes when it comes to the law, but we aren't so naive to think that somehow we can become perfect. Right? We're, not, we're not that dumb. <laughs> we know we're not perfect. So I think where we struggle with, this is where, this is where I struggle with personally. And let me know if it's where you struggle too. I know that I could never be perfect, so I need God to do the work. But I'm still a natural-born legalist. So let me do a couple works to add on to it. It's kind of like, God will do his best, I'll do the rest. I think Spurgeon is very helpful. He says this, Such is the depravity of the human heart. If it can't earn its entire way to heaven it would be happy to have a small part, just a small part in the last mile. Okay, we we know we know that we cannot be perfect. But can we just do a little bit to earn our way to heaven in the last mile? Just, we'll just have a little bit of work. This is backwards. One of the biggest paradigm shifts in my entire life was a paradigm shift when When I realize so often I get sanctification before justification, I get them out of order. The other title that I was going to have for this sermon was Backwards Christianity. But I realized it was really only the last point, so I can't do that. Um, Justification. God declares you righteous. Not based on anything you've done. Not based on anything you could do or ever will do. It's based on Jesus' work alone. And he looks upon you as you have faith in Jesus Christ and says, you are as righteous as the son of God and your sin is removed. Justification. Sanctification. Once you have been justified, now God starts working in your heart and making you more holy and making you more holy. It's a process by which you and God work together synergistic. You remember that whole uh, couple of sermons that we talked about sanctification when we got in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13? Um, it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He works because you work, you work because he works. We're working together and we're working as one. So often, I try to put sanctification before justification. And I say, you know what? I'm going to work and I'm going to work and I'm going to work. And God, you can work on me and work in me and work with me and help me and help me. And as I grow more holy, then you will declare me righteous. That's backwards. That's works righteousness. That's a gospel that says, you do your best, God will do the rest. That's what the Mormons believe. Uh, Second Nephi chapter 25, verse 23. I've shared this with a couple of Mormons that have come by. You are saved on the basis of grace after you've done all you can do. It's literally what the verse says. And so often, with those beautiful doctrines of justification and glorification, so often I get them out of order. Oh, I know I could never do anything right on my own to earn salvation, so I must be justified. And now I'm going to be worked on, and as I'm sanctified and sin is being burned away and holiness is growing in my heart, oh, look at me, God, look at how good I'm doing. And slowly but surely, sanctification and justification start to move, and now it's as if I'm going to get to God on the last day and say, I've become holy, look at me. And God will say, you're right, you can enter into heaven. No, On the last day, I'm still going to be a messed up sinner when I see Jesus face to face. On the last day, when I stand before God, right before I'm glorified, it's not like 98% holy, 99% holy, 100% holy, you can die now. Oh, we're still going to be thoroughly tainted with sin. That's why we cling to justification. It's nothing you can do. It's nothing I can do. It's nothing we can do. Paul knew this. Paul knew that all that he had that was either inherited or earned ultimately was a liability. If he clung to that alone, and he says, this is what I'm clinging to only. And all of these things, whether it's ethnic background, spiritual heritage, zeal for God, all of these things, I'm going to take to God on the last day and say, Look, God, look at what I've done for you. Look at who I am inherently through and through. I have to be able to go to heaven. Anyone who does that on the last day, he will say, Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. You're trusting in yourself. You didn't trust in my son. Why did I kill my son? If you could do the work on your own, Jim Boy says this, quote, that is the work of God in a human heart. Paul came to the point where he opened his ledger book. He looked at what he had accumulated by inheritance and by his efforts and reflected that these things actually kept him from Christ. He didn't say these can earn me a right saying with God. He said these are keeping me from Christ. He then took the entire list and placed it where it belonged, under the list of liabilities. He called it all loss. And under assets, he wrote Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone. Turn back to Philippians chapter 3 and we'll finish here. He says, As to the law found blameless, verse 7, but... Whatever things were gained to me. So now, even more than those seven things on the list, whatever was gained to me, good things, bad things, sinful things, righteous things, holy things, whatever things were gained to me, all those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All of it. This is, again, so helpful to see. It's not that Paul is saying... You know, eating a hamburger is terrible or being married is atrocious. These are all bad things. It's not what he's saying. Marriage is a good thing. He'll say it's a good thing. He says it's a picture of the gospel. Having kids is a beautiful thing. It can be a picture of the gospel. Things in life that we cling to and hang on to and love. It's not that we can't love them. But when we bring Christ into the picture and compare those things to Christ, we count them lost. We need to make sure that in proportion to how much we love Jesus, those things are nothing. It's not that they're bad things. It's that compared to Jesus, they're nothing. Similarly, Jesus says, unless you hate father and mother, hate brother and sister, you can't follow me. It's not that he's saying you have to go home and hate your mom, hate your dad, hate your siblings. He's saying when you bring your level of devotion to me into the picture, it looks like hate. It looks like everybody else, you couldn't care less about them. That's what Paul is saying here. Everything, good, bad, everything, I count it to be loss. I know the place that those things have in my life, and none of those things that God has placed in my life are anything that can bring me to a right relationship with God. None of those things. None of those things are ultimately given to me by God to satisfy me eternally. All of those things I count as lost for the sake of Christ. Ironside says it this way, and I love the way he says this. It should be noted that Paul did not count them lost for merely Christianity. Paul was not simply exchanging one religion for another. It was not one system of rites and ceremonies giving place to a superior system or one set of doctrines, rules, and regulations making way for a better one. He had come in contact with a divine person, the once crucified but now glorified Christ of God. He had been won by that person forever. And for his sake, he counted all else to be lost. Christ and Christ alone meets every need of the soul. His work has satisfied God and it satisfies the one who trusts in him alone. So I wonder this morning, I just plead with your heart this morning. Have you come into contact with Jesus? Have you come to a place where you see everything that you could do, could ever be, have ever been, it will not gain me right standing before God. And when you come into contact with Jesus and you realize, simply because of his love for you, He said, I'll do the work. Every other religion says, you work, you work, you work. Jesus says, it's finished. Every other religion says, you do, you do, you do. Jesus says, it's done. And freely offers us the gift of his perfect righteousness for our ugly, hideous sin. Is there anything that you place your confidence in to gain your access to heaven? Maybe it's your service. Maybe it's that you serve diligently, faithfully. Maybe it's that you are here early on Sundays. Maybe you are a part of a Bible study. Maybe it's your devotion. Maybe it's how much you read. Maybe it's your spiritual heritage or your spiritual zeal or your track record of pretty much being a goody two-shoes all the time and you haven't done anything super, super bad. What is it that your heart clings to the most to try and find confidence in that today you can say, no, 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 my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, whether it's my spiritual heritage, whether it's good works I can do. I dare not trust the sweetest frame that I have, but I wholly lean on Jesus and Jesus' name alone. Father, I pray even as we sing those words that you would be pleased to work in us an understanding of placing our confidence in Jesus alone. How often we place our confidence in other things, thinking that maybe, just maybe, we can add to the work that you've done. Oh, we know that we need help, but maybe you can do your best and and we'll try and do the rest. God, may may we be reminded nothing but the blood of Jesus can give us a right standing before the Father.